0: Chapter 20, Part 1 of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lorraine Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter 20. Chester, South Carolina, March 21, 1865 to May 1, 1865. Part 1. Chester, South Carolina, March 21, 1865. Another flitting has occurred. Captain Ogden came for me the splendid Childs was true as steel to the last. Surely he is the kindest of men. Captain Ogden was slightly incredulous when I depicted the wonders of Colonel Childs's generosity. So I skillfully led out the good gentleman for inspection, and he walked to the train with us. He offered me Confederate money, silver and gold, and finally offered to buy our cotton and pay us now in gold. Of course I laughed at his overflowing bounty and accepted nothing. "'but I begged him to come down to Chester or Camden and buy our cotton of General Chestnut there. "'On the train after leaving Lincolnton, as Captain Ogden is a refugee, "'has had no means of communicating with his home since New Orleans fell, "'and was sure to know how refugees contrive to live, "'I beguiled the time acquiring information from him. "'When people are without a cent, how do they live?' I asked. I am about to enter the noble band of homeless, houseless refugees, and Confederate pay does not buy one's shoe-strings." To which he replied, "'Sponge! Sponge! Why did you not let Colonel Childs pay your bills?' "'I have no bills,' said I. We have never made bills anywhere, not even at home, where they would trust us, and nobody would trust me in Lincolnton.' "'Why did you not borrow his money? "'General Chestnut could pay him at his leisure.' "'I am by no means sure General Chestnut will ever again have any money,' said I. "'As the train rattled and banged along, and I waved my handkerchief in farewell to Miss Middleton, Isabella, and other devoted friends, I could only wonder if fate would ever throw me again with such kind, clever, agreeable, congenial companions.' "'The McLean's refused to be paid for their rooms.' No plummet can sound the depths of the hospitality and kindness of the North Carolina people. Misfortune dogged us from the outset. Everything went wrong with the train. We broke down within two miles of Charlotte, and had to walk that distance, which was pretty rough on an invalid barely out of a fever. My spirit was further broken by losing an invaluable lace veil, which was worn because I was too poor to buy a cheaper one that is, if there were any veils at all for sale in our region. My husband had ordered me to a house in Charlotte kept by some great friends of his. They established me in the drawing room, a really handsome apartment. They made up a bed there and put in a washstand and plenty of water, with everything refreshingly clean and nice. But it continued to be a public drawing room, open to all, so that I was half dead at night and wanted to go to bed. The piano was there, and the company played it. The landlady announced, proudly, that for supper there were nine kinds of custard. Custard sounded nice and light, so I sent for some, but found it heavy potato pie. I said, Ellen, this may kill me, though Dover's powder did not. Don't you believe that, missus? Try. We barricaded ourselves in the drawing-room that night, and left the next day at dawn. Arrived at the station, we had another disappointment. The train was behind time. There we sat on our boxes nine long hours, for the cars might come at any moment, and we dared not move an inch from the spot. Finally the train rolled in, overloaded with paroled prisoners. But heaven helped us. A kind mail agent invited us, with two other forlorn women, into his comfortable and clean mail car. Ogden, true to his theory, did not stay at the boarding-house as we did. Some Christian acquaintances took him in for the night. This he explained with a grin. My husband was at the Chester station with a carriage. We drove at once to Mrs. de Vega's. March 24th. I have been ill, but what could you expect? My lines, however, have again fallen in pleasant places. Mrs. de Vega is young, handsome, and agreeable a kind and perfect hostess. And as to the house, my room is all that I could ask, and leaves nothing to be desired, so very fresh, clean, warm, and comfortable is it. It is the drawing-room, suddenly made into a bedroom for me. But it is my very own. We are among the civilized of the earth once more. March twenty-seventh, I have moved again, and now I am looking from a window high, with something more to see than the sky. WE HAVE THE THIRD STORY OF DR. DEVEGA'S HOUSE, WHICH OPENS ON THE STRAIGHT STREET THAT LEADS TO THE RAILROAD ABOUT A MILE OFF. Mrs. Bedden is the loveliest of young widows. Yesterday at church Isaac Hayne nestled so close to her cap-strings that I had to touch him and say, SIT UP! Josiah Bedden was killed in that famous fight of the Charleston Light Dragoons. The Dragoons stood still to be shot down in their tracks, having no orders to retire. They had been forgotten, doubtless, and they scorned to take care of themselves. In this high and airy retreat, as in Richmond, then in Columbia, and then in Lincolnton, my cry is still, if they would only leave me here in peace, and if I were sure things never could be worse with me. Again am I surrounded by old friends. People seem to vie with each other to show how good they can be to me. Today Smith opened the trenches and appeared laden with a tray covered with a snow-white napkin. Here was my first help toward housekeeping again. Mrs. Pride has sent a boiled ham, a loaf of bread, a huge pancake, another neighbor coffee already parched in ground, a loaf of sugar already cracked, candles, pickles, and all the other things one must trust to love for now. Such money as we have avails us nothing, even if there were anything left in the shops to buy. We had a jolly luncheon. James Lowndes called, the best of good company. He said of Buck, She is a queen and ought to reign in a palace. No prince charming yet. No man has yet approached her that I think half good enough for her. Then Mrs. Prelow Hamilton, nay, Levy, came with the story of family progress, not a royal one from Columbia here. Before we left home, said she, "'Major Hamilton spread a map of the United States on the table "'and showed me with his finger where Sherman was likely to go. "'Womanlike, I demurred. "'But suppose he does not choose to go that way. Pooh, pooh! what do you know of war? "'So we set out, my husband, myself, and two children, "'all in one small buggy. "'The 14th of February we took up our line of march, "'and straight before Sherman's men for five weeks we fled together.' By incessant hurrying and scurrying from pillar to post, we succeeded in acting as a sort of avant courier of the Yankee army. Without rest, and with much haste, we got here last Wednesday, and here we mean to stay and defy Sherman and his legions. Much the worse for where were we. The first night their beauty sleep was rudely broken into at Alston with a cry, Move on, the Yanks are upon us. So they hurried on, half awake, to Winsborough, but with no better luck. There they had to lighten the ship, leave trunks, etc., and put on all sail, for this time the Yankees were only five miles behind. Whip and spur, ride for your life, was the cry. Sherman's objective point seemed to be our buggy, said she, for you know that when we got to Lancaster, Sherman was expected there, and he keeps his appointments. That is, he kept that one. Two small children were in our chariot, and I began to think of the Red Sea expedition. But we lost no time, and soon we were in Sheraw, clearly out of the track. We thanked God for all his mercies, and hugged to our bosoms fond hopes of a bed and bath so much needed by all, especially for the children. At twelve o'clock, General Hardy himself knocked us up with word to, March, march, for all the blue bonnets are over the border. In mad haste we made for Fayetteville, when they said, God bless your soul, this is the seat of war now, the battleground where Sherman and Johnston are to try conclusions. So we harked back, as the hunters say, and cut across country, aiming for this place. Clean clothes, my dear? Never a one, except as we took off garment by garment, and washed it and dried it by our campfire, with our loins girded and in haste. I was snug and comfortable all that time in Lincolnton. TODAY STEPHEN D. LEE'S corps MARCHED THROUGH, ONLY TO SURRENDER. THE CAMP SONGS OF THESE MEN WERE A HEARTBREAK, SO SAD, YET SO STIRRING. THEY WOULD HAVE WARMED THE BLOOD OF AN ICELANDER. THE LEADING VOICE WAS POWERFUL, MELLOW, CLEAR, distinct, PATHETIC, SWEET. SO I SAT DOWN, AS WOMEN HAVE DONE BEFORE, WHEN THEY HUNG UP THEIR HARPS BY STRANGE STREAMS, AND I WEPT THE BITTERNESS OF SUCH WEEPING. MUSIC? AWAY, AWAY. Thou speakest to me of things which in all my long life I have not found, and I shall not find. There they go, the gay and gallant few, doomed, the last gathering of the flower of southern pride, to be killed, or worse, to a prison. They continued to prance by, light and jaunty. They march with as airy a tread as if they still believed the world was all on their side, and that there were no Yankee bullets for the unwary. What will Joe Johnston do with them now? The Hood melodrama is over, though the curtain has not fallen on the last scene. Cassandra croaks and makes many mistakes, but today she believes that Hood stock is going down. When that style of enthusiasm is on the wane, the rapidity of its extinction is miraculous. It is like the snuffing out of a candle, one moment white, then gone forever. No, that is not right. It is the snowflake on the river that is referred to. I am getting things as much mixed as do the fine ladies of society. Lee and Johnston have each fought a drawn battle. Only a few more dead bodies lie stiff and stark on an unknown battlefield. For we do not so much as know where these drawn battles took place. Teddy Barnwell, after sharing with me my first luncheon, failed me cruelly. He was to come for me to go down to the train and see Isabella pass by. "'One word with Isabella worth a thousand ordinary ones. "'So she has gone by, and I've not seen her. "'Old Colonel Chestnut refuses to say grace, "'but as he leaves the table, audibly declares, "'I thank God for a good dinner. "'When asked why he did this odd thing, he said, "'My way is to be sure of a thing before I return thanks for it. "'Mayor Goodwin thanked Sherman for promised protection to Columbia.' Soon after the burning began, I received the wife of a post office robber. The poor thing had done no wrong, and I felt so sorry for her. Who would be a woman? Who, that fool, a weeping, pining, faithful woman? She hath hard measures still when she hopes kindest, and all her beauty only makes ingrates. March twenty ninth. I was awakened with a bunch of violets from Mrs. Pride. Violets always remind me of Kate, and of the sweet south wind that blew in the garden of paradise part of my life. Then it all came back, the dread unspeakable that lies behind every thought now. Thursday. I find I have not spoken of the box-car which held the Preston party that day on their way to York from Richmond. In the party were Mr. and Mrs. Lawson Clay, General and Mrs. Preston, and their three daughters, Captain Rogers and Mr. Portman whose father is an English earl, and connected financially and happily with Portman Square. In my American ignorance I may not state Mr. Portman's case plainly. Mr. Portman is, of course, a younger son. Then there was Sally and her baby in wet-nurse, with no end of servants, male and female. In this ark they slept, ate, and drank, such being the fortune of war. We were there but a short time, but Mr. Portman, during that brief visit of ours, was said to have eaten three luncheons, and the number of his drinks, toddies so-called, were counted too. Mr. Portman's contribution to the larder had been three small pigs. They were, however, run over by the train, and made sausage meat of unduly and before their time. General Lee says to the men who shirk duty, "'This is the people's war. When they tire, I stop.' Wigfall says, "'It is all over. The game is up. "'He is on his way to Texas, "'and when the hanging begins he can step over into Mexico. "'I am plucking up, heart. "'Such troops do I see go by every day. "'They must turn the tide, "'and surely they are going for something more than surrender. "'It is very late, and the wind flaps my curtain, "'which seems to moan, too late. "'All this will end by making me a nervous lunatic.' Yesterday, while I was driving with Mrs. Pride, Colonel McCaw passed us. He called out, "'I do hope you are in comfortable quarters.' "'Very comfortable,' I replied. "'Oh, Mrs. Chestnut,' said Mrs. Pride. "'How can you say that?' "'Perfectly comfortable, and hope it may never be worse with me,' said I. "'I have a clean little parlor, sixteen by eighteen, with its bare floor well scrubbed, a dinner-table, six chairs, and, well, that is all.' but I have a charming lookout from my window high. My world is now thus divided into two parts, where Yankees are and where Yankees are not. As I sat disconsolate, looking out, ready for any new tramp of men in arms, the magnificent figure of General Preston hove in sight. He was mounted on a mighty steed, worthy of its rider, followed by his trusty squire, William Walker, who bore before him the General's portmanteau. When I had time to realize the situation, I perceived at General Preston's right hand Mr. Christopher Hampton and Mr. Portman, who passed by. Soon Mrs. Pride, in some occult way, divined or heard that they were coming here, and she sent me at once no end of good things for my tea-table. General Preston entered very soon after, and with him Clement Clay, of Alabama, the latter in pursuit of his wife's trunk. I left it with the Reverend Mr. Martin, and have no doubt it is perfectly safe. But where? We have written to Mr. Martin to inquire. Then Wilmot de appeared. I am here, he said, to consult with General Chestnut. He and I always think alike. He added, emphatically, Slavery is stronger than ever. If you think so, said I, you will find that for once you and General Chestnut do not think alike. He has held that slavery was a thing of the past, this many a year. I said to General Preston, I pass my days and nights partly at this window. I am sure our army is silently dispersing. Men are moving the wrong way, all the time. They slip by with no songs and no shouts now. They have given the thing up. See for yourself. Look there. For a while the streets were thronged with soldiers, and then they were empty again. But the marching now is without tap of drum. March thirty-first, Mr. Prelo Hamilton told us of a great adventure. Mrs. Preston was put under his care on the train. He soon found the only other women along were strictly unfortunate females, as Carlyle calls them, beautiful and aggressive. He had to communicate the unpleasant fact to Mrs. Preston on account of their propinquity, and was lost in admiration of her silent dignity, her quiet self-possession, her calmness, her deafness and blindness, her thoroughbred ignoring of all that she did not care to see. Some women, no matter how ladylike, would have made a fuss or would have fidgeted, but Mrs. Preston dominated the situation and possessed her soul in innocence and peace. Met Robert Johnston from Camden. He has been a prisoner, having been taken at Camden the Yankees robbed Zack Canty of his forks and spoons. When Zack did not seem to like it, they laughed at him. When he said he did not see any fun in it, they pretended to weep and wiped their eyes with their coat tails. All this maddening derision Zack said was as hard to bear as it was to see them ride off with his horse, Albine. They stole all of Mrs. Zack's jewelry and silver. When the Yankee general heard of it, he wrote her a very polite note, saying how sorry he was that she had been annoyed, and returned a bundle of Zack's love letters written to her before she was married. Robert Johnston said Miss Chestnut was a brave and determined spirit. One Yankee officer came in while they were at breakfast, and sat down to warm himself at the fire. "'Rebels have no rights,' Miss Chestnut said to him politely. "'I suppose you have come to rob us. Please do so and go.' Your presence agitates my blind old father. The man jumped up in a rage and said, What do you take me for, a robber? No, indeed, said she, and for very shame he marched out empty-handed. End of chapter 20, part 1